Welcome to the VoxGig Developer Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Roger. I speak to people in the software development community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. I'm the CEO of VoxGig, a software consultancy that builds DevRel tools. Because we believe in the power of community, we host a monthly virtual online meetup for everyone in developer relations. Check out devrelmeetup.com. And visit voxgig.com to view our work, use our tools, and sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Please sit back and enjoy my fireside chat with today's guest. Today, we are talking developer relations with David Kramer, one of the founders of Century.io. If you're building a dev tool, this interview is for you. One of the key insights at Century was that initial purchasing decisions of dev tools are often down to a single developer with a credit card for expenses, and you need to keep your price, your initial price, under the expense limit for that card. Now, as developers, we've all suffered from the problem of trying to convince a non-technical boss that you need a dev tool. Well, just sidestep that problem altogether. And that is just one of the hard-won insights that we learned from David. So let's talk developer relations. David, welcome to the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. It is great to have you on today talking about developer relations and dev tools. Um, for people who've been living under a rock, Tell us what Sentry does and your role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way I always describe Sentry to folks is, you know, if the Uber application crashes, you know, like the you're calling a car on your phone, Sentry collects that information about the crash report, sends it to the Uber team, the, the software team, and helps them diagnose and hopefully fix the problem. Um, and we do that with a, a variety of um, kinds of problems, but they all look like user-facing errors one way or another. Um, I started the company a long time ago, started the project, um, spun up the company with uh, my buddy who uh, runs our design organization. And I've worn, I guess, many hats since then. But um, at the end of the day, I'm a software engineer, still by trade. Um, my formal title these days is CTO. Uh, but I do a little bit of everything. I'm still involved a lot in like strategy and as well as the technology and product decisions. So, I have uh, worked with a couple of I guess you call them competitors or people who do the same sort of thing that you guys do. Uh, and I'll leave them nameless because uh, I wouldn't have had pleasant experiences with their APIs. Um, is that, I mean, how, how are you guys different? Like, is it because you care about developers? Yeah, I think a lot of the core team early on, we are pretty, one, I think we went in as we were fairly senior, we kind of had a, a strong sense of direction of what we were doing. We also took a really strong approach to the engineering behind the problem in the sense of the best analogy I give you here is there's a lot of ways you can like log errors, right? Um, most of them not very good in all honesty. Uh, when we did it, we're like, you know, what's the most rich way we could bring this into production? You know, how do we get as close to development as we can in production from a debugability point of view? And so as an example, some languages support reflection. And so Sentry will go above and beyond to, to utilize things like reflection to say, pull in uh, the stack locals, basically the variables defined in each stack frame, or uh, we'll pull in surrounding source code and all these other little tidbits here and there. Um, and I would say we put a lot of pride into the, the level of detail uh, we go after, as well as sort of the aggressiveness of our technology from just the sheer breadth of things we can support. Like one of, one of these cool things we did early on you, you can kind of think a lot of what Sentry's done, and I think that's helped us to succeed. In a lot of ways, it looks like over-engineering. Um, but one of those uh, things that was definitely over-engineering early on was uh, when React Native came out, 
We're like, you know, it'd be cool is if we could have stack traces that bridged from native code to JavaScript code. So you could just read it seamlessly and it was easier to debug, right? So you don't need to do that. Um, Also, React Native was not very big back then. So there's arguably better things we could have spent our time on. But we did a lot of things like that, where it just made the the user experience uh, far better. Um, and I think we just put a lot of like care into to the the quality of the product and whatnot. And then, I mean, we we're developers, so we spent a lot of time with our peers. And you know, somewhere in there, somehow, you know, marketing worked yeah. itself out. Um, and I would just say, you know, over time, we became the the clear winner of the space. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that React Native bet because I mean that was a lucky bet, right? But I don't know. Did you have like a? Did it have the right technical smell? Do you know what I mean when I say smell, right? Is it just, you could tell React or React Native, it just felt right? Is there a lot of intuition in what you guys do? Yeah, so one of the core premises of Century, when we started the business, we're like, okay, like the kind of idea, especially when we raised venture capital, the core idea was like, we're going to build this into a market share company, not not just like a normal B2B IT, like enterprise software thing, you know? We didn't want hundreds of customers. We wanted tens of thousands of customers. And so when you start thinking about the world that way, it becomes very obvious how you succeed. And it's like, okay, where are the most customers? And way back in the day, jQuery was a thing. Um, used the power like dynamic uh, content or animations or stuff on websites. We're like, you know what? If we support a JavaScript, which was jQuery at the time, um, every customer could use Sentry. And then coincidentally around that time, React kind of you know launched. Um, and there was Ember and Angular and all these other frameworks yeah, that like the, yeah. the spa the spa generation, I guess, uh, was on the rise. And it was clear that JavaScript was like a really important bet for us. And so, you know, it, it stemmed from like, where are all the developers that we don't have? Um, and then do we actually want to support them? Um, because there's a, you know, there's always an asterisk like Java. We don't really care that much yeah. about just because the kinds of companies adopting new technology are often more JavaScript based rather yes. than Java based. Um but anyway, so we just looked at it from like a sheer, like where are the most developers at? And, you know, so I'd say we were intentional about it. And then also fortunate in our timing that it was just right when JavaScript was really about to take off. Yeah, and Node took off around the same time, right? So you kind of rode yep. that wave as well. Yeah. Yeah, and we just went after all those like traditional web stacks. So we we started on the Python side, like Century was built as a Django application, still is Django. Um and then we kind of quickly moved beyond that. And we're like, okay, we can make this work for, you know, we had like a little JavaScript prototype back in the day, but then we're like PHP and Ruby because there was Rails and stuff like this. And then Node. Um, and it's interesting because all of those pale in comparison to sort of the, the front-end JavaScript um, ecosystem and it's the sheer magnitude of it oh, these yeah. days. <laughs> the pain, the pain. Yeah. Uh, so Century so is still, still a Django app? That's awesome. Uh, yeah, the... Wow. the the main code, the monolith, I guess, is yeah. Django. Um, to be fair, it's these days. I don't actually. I I don't work on the core app anymore. I don't yeah. contribute to it. But um, it's probably a little bit monstrous. Uh, and we swapped out a bunch of things with Rust here and there uh, for high performance systems. And then obviously, we have massive React UI. So you know, it's probably just as big as the Django application these days. Uh, man, I used when I was doing consulting back in the day. I used to love. Love Django because you got that little admin dashboard. Yeah. Free, right. Yeah. Talk about, talk about, it, talk about a, a great dev tool, right? Oh, yeah. I, I think Django is still one of the best frameworks out there. It, it's not, you know, as popular as it once was. And I think a lot of that is like this complexity with, like, as, as this UI layer, you know, came into um, yeah. existence, I think people just wanted to write code in the same language. So, 
there's a lot of attempts to build frameworks and whatnot in Node. Like Next.js is probably one of the bigger ones. Um, but none of them are full featured like Django. Well, you know? okay. So let me ask you that, right? Because you have an interesting perspective on the industry, kind of a 64,000 foot view because you touch all these different areas and you see people doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, why was there or has there not been a backend node framework like Rails or Django? Right. Yeah. Why did that never? Why are there? Why is this? Okay, on the front end, I'll give you the front end. Okay, we can kind of understand the proliferation there. But I would have thought on the back end, somebody would have built Rails for Node, right? Yeah, I don't know because you've had some halfway attempts, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the challenges or why people have shied away from it. For a long time, I thought it was because people didn't build significant software on top of Node.js. That might actually still, there might be some degree of truth to that still. Um, but I think the problem is, I mean, software is not that complicated. It's, it's not any more complicated than it used to be, arguably. But it's taken us a lot longer to build things these days. And so even if you look at these web frameworks, take like Next.js, which actually changes quite dramatically every year. And so I think one, you have a moving target, which is complicated. Two, because they're choosing to move the target, I think they end up then not building the other, you know, nuts and bolts. And so, you know, I think the classic example of use Django is like the ORM, you know, love, hate, you know, you can be yeah. on either side of that spectrum, yeah. but it was fully featured effectively, right? And, yeah. and you had all these tools built into Django and those are not overly complicated things to build, especially when you have a community building something. And I think if you look like Node, maybe, maybe it's just like the size of the internet and all these other things going on, but like, there's not really like a central community in Node that's like, oh yeah, we should build this this framework to make it easier to build these kinds of apps, or you know, a small group that's just gonna you know really churn through the code. And so I, I don't really quite understand what it is because even PHP you have Laravel in it, which is very exactly. similar to Rails and Django. Yeah, clear, um, the clear winner, right? The clear choice. Yeah, and yeah, I, I'm curious what'll happen because you can see something like Next. You know, there's Remix, there's Astro, there's a bunch of frameworks now. Um, but a lot of them are just still really focused on rendering. And maybe that, that problem space is just too big that nobody does anything else. Or maybe it's because all of our backends are still written in other technologies. So it doesn't matter. I don't know. Um, and where's Rust going? I mean, you guys have a view of Rust as well, right? So it, it puzzles me uh, because it's really hard. Why is it so popular? Yeah. I think... I mean, if you look at Rust, it's like it's just a C alternative, right? And C, yeah, yeah. C versus C plus plus. I know there's a there's a lot to be said there, but like C is C is not that complicated. C plus plus gets quite complicated quite fast, and I think people reach for Rust because it's simpler than C and C plus plus. Yeah, at least in modern code, and the the portability works really really well in the same way that C and portability was was pretty good. I don't know. I, I honestly think it's going to stay in its lane. It's great for doing like high performance tasks. Like we use it for symbolification, which is basically when we take machine code and turn it back into like human readable code. And so, uh, JavaScript's uh, a poor example of this, but JavaScript, yeah. you know, it transpiles, it minifies all this stuff. We basically unminify it using Rust, and that allows us to do it with like very low memory and CPU footprint. Okay. Um, all right. That's how the magic happens. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. It's actually it's quite complicated nice. these days, but it is also like I mean, there's a lot of errors out there, and so sure. um, squeezing the performance out of that is actually pretty key for us. And then there's that that problem exists elsewhere too. So like iOS or compiled, basically any compiled code, they have some version of like a machine crash dump. Um, and getting that back to something that a human can understand is quite tedious. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
Uh, okay, let's focus on developer relations a little bit. So I, I I'm looking at I'm looking at all of your supported platforms. It's like nearly a hundred. Is that like nearly a hundred SDKs? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. In all honesty, like uh, I always, close, right? it, it, it's so complicated these days. Because even when we think about like docs, docs are like a really complicated nightmare because it's like well. Django, right? Django is a framework in Python. Python is actually the SDK, but then we have a Django integration. And you just multiply that out. Oh, I mean, there must be thousands of combinations of these things, right? And so I I like to think of it at like the language level, and then we just support everything under each language. And we support um, most programming languages, to be quite honest, probably just about anything that exists out there that has users. Okay, one word question, how? (laughs) Right? Well, okay, I'm going to expand it a little bit because... Uh, this is a topic that has come up a few times. Um, how do you, when you're a single, like most most companies tend to focus on a specific language or small set of languages. I mean, Google had like, you could only code in JavaScript, Python, and Java and C, I think, well, that back in the day. I don't know what it is now, but that used to be the, 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 root, the law, right? Uh, which is a good idea. But for dev tools companies that have to have SDKs, you can't do that. So do you do you do you get everybody internally to learn all those skills? Do you outsource bits of it? Um, I see people taking all sorts of different approaches, uh, ending yeah. up with you know SDKs that are rotting because they can't support them, to um, badly written code because they did it internally but they didn't have the skill sets. Yeah, yeah, I think it's tricky and. and I- it's actually even worse for us because to build an SDK, basically to to use these underlying low-level mechanics of a language and framework, it's, it's more complex than, say, I have a REST API and I, I just need to write some shims, yeah. right? Yeah. You've got to know so your it, stuff. Yeah. Wow. So the problem okay. is quite tricky. And like early on, um, it's a combination of open source and in-house. So like I, I built a bunch of like the first drafts of SDKs, I would say, or I took over maintainership because honestly, like, most languages work the same. And if you can figure out how to write... If you're like senior enough and you can you know diagnose and debug and figure out how python works you can do the exact same thing in ruby and in php and whatnot there's obviously like like syntax sugar that you might do incorrectly like people were not a big fan of my java code i'll i'll tell you um <laughs> oh but, but i did it for yeah. 10 years <laughs> yeah but it, but it's like you can kind of get away with that with some strong sort of uh folks that can expand scope these days um it's still, it's still kind of a combination. So we actually, every so often, like there's open source stuff that happens in our SDKs. But generally speaking, if somebody's contributing to an SDK, we just, we just pay them. Like we yeah. just offer them a contract. And like, usually it's like a low strings kind of thing. Um, and we actually have, uh, on SDKs alone, I'm sure it's like a dozen plus contractors, plus probably another 20 full-time employees, plus um, people that work on adjacent systems that kind of help. But it's it's a big problem. Your SDKs, are they're not really amenable to being code-generated, are they? Like It's not like you're just trying no. to expose an API. You've got to go nope, into the internals. Yeah, and it's especially bad in things like JavaScript because they actually require like an intense level of expertise to you know deal with things like tree shaking and making sure bundle size is small and all these other things. And so, I don't know, early on, we just we focused on a few. Open source helped. Um, when we were able to take on more work, then we'd kind of bring it under our umbrella, you know? So it's like, you know, PHP started as a community project and we brought it under the fold at some point. And honestly, we didn't even hire somebody. You know, we have contractors on the PHP data. And then, I mean, it's probably 
in the last three years, we hired a full-time person on PHP. Yeah. And so, you know, essentially it's been around a long time. And so you can kind of get away with it. And I think, you know, if you see the demand, you should be able to invest. But I think it's, you know, it is very different than if you're just like shimming an API and yeah, just code gen or don't even bother in all honesty. Like REST APIs are not hard to use. Uh, there's generic clients everywhere. So yeah, your stuff is is, is kind of proper engineering. Uh, let's talk about the business side for a minute, Frank, because... Okay, there's two there's two issues here. One is uh, the type of the tool space that you guys work in. A lot of it tends to be really expensive, right? So I'd like to I'd like to explore why it has the pricing structure it does. Um, and the other thing is the uh, who buys, right? Is it a dev in a team that recommends it to their boss, or have you gone to the next level where? The CIO is like, oh yeah, yeah, we got to use Sentry. So, well, maybe let's talk yeah. about the price. Maybe, maybe, maybe let's talk about who buys first because that informs the pricing of it. Yeah, yeah. So we actually, when we built the company, we kind of made a set of decisions. Said this is how the company is going to be. You know, so we we sort of manufactured the way we wanted the business to work versus just responding, which I I think people. I think people trick themselves into thinking they have to do things a certain way often. So for example, you know, going back to that market share goal, right? We have this sort of internal motto. It's like every developer should use Sentry. Um, it's, it's just genuinely, it's a useful paradigm, right? Like the ability to debug your app with Sentry is far better than without. And so based on that, we're like, it's very useful. Every developer should be able to use it. So what does that take? Well, it takes things like language support, right? It also takes an accessible price point. And so... We were, you know, we basically have refused to raise the baseline price from $29, especially when you constantly see companies jacking up the price every year as if inflation costs or something. But, um, and so we, we said that it's like super important. And even $29 is expensive for some people, especially in other countries. Um, and we, we just think of it like, you know, um, uh, like utility billing. So it's the same as AWS or anything else. Like we just charge based on the cost profile that, you know, we see ourselves. Um, but there is a, you know, you've got to be reasonable in there. It's like, okay, we need to keep the cost low. You know, we can't add a bunch of features that are going to be like really expensive to run or anything because the cost will go way up and we can't increase the price for those features, right? And so the price point was like a very big deal for us. And we've not nailed it everywhere. Like we have a bunch of products now, but like for the error monitoring, at least it's it's fairly stable. Um, but I think that is really important. It's got to be cheap and affordable. And, and that's one reason we have so many customers. Um and then I think on the other side, it's like, you know, our buyer, again, we, we chose this, our buyer, and it works, is the developer. Like, they may not pay the bill, yes. but they are actually yeah. the buyer. That's how we think they about make it, right? And, right? Yeah. And so, and that's very much true in most organizations these days. Like, once in a while, we'll have a top-down sale at a company, and they'll sort of, like, bring it into their team, and it's, like, confusing to me. But it's it's so rare these days. I'm, I'm do talking you guys have, like, like SDRs yeah. and, like, proper sales people? We, we do, but it's, like, we're constantly changing the program because it's like very hard. So we have a split where like only 30% of our revenue goes through the sales channel. So it's almost all bottoms up self-serve. And that's very intentional in a lot of ways because we just wanted to build something that was that way. And we wanted yeah. to make it really easy to pay for it. And there are no features you can buy or that you can buy by just talking to a human rather. Like everything is self-serve yeah, capable. Yeah. Um, and so like we, we intentionally made a lot of those decisions and I will tell you, it's still controversial with especially traditional like sales folks or people that come from that background where they're not always believers. It's like, no, 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 you got to talk to the CTO or something. I'm like, CTOs don't buy software. Like they, they just sit in meetings and stuff. You got to go convince the developers that it's useful. 
and they will help you navigate to the the person that's going to pay the bill. But at and the end of the day, the decision just, maker is the developer, not just the CDO, right? It's not it's not just up the chain of management. Um, you know, if you're an independent consultant or a small consulting shop, what you're asking your client to do is pay you guys. Yeah, because I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah. if I'm a consultant, I'm building uh, I'm building an MVP for somebody. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to pay for Sentry, right? <laughs> that's a, that's infrastructure. So I've yeah. got to convince my client who's not technical, right? Um, and if you're giving warm, fuzzy developer vibes, uh, it's a lot easier to sell, right? And if there's no weird sticker shock, yeah, exactly. Some people, uh, it really works. Yeah, and I think okay. that's what okay. That, that's the point though that you mentioned is like because the price tag is manageable. It's like the reason it works is all these things together, right? If it was a million dollars a year. Yeah, a developer, it doesn't matter how much a developer wants the software. It's like they're not just going to magically smuggle it into the organization. But because it's so affordable and it sort of can scale with your usage, it's it's really hard for somebody to be like, hey, you know, we want to run Sentry in production, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to be that much money. Can we do it? Of course, they're going to allow it. Like, like you want to kind of cater to the tools that your team wants, right? It's affordable. It's probably one of the cheapest monitoring vendors in the space, to be quite honest with you. Um and so it, it just works out really well that way. We've not we've not quite, I would say, we have not solved every problem. Like from the go-to-market angle of Sentry, we rely a lot on brand awareness to sell the product. Like we we try to build a great product. Most of the time we do a good job. And then we rely on everybody knowing that we exist and some magic happening somewhere in there and they buy the product, right? We haven't really done a great job yet, or at least we haven't figured out ways to sort of manufacture that growth or that marketing and sales motion. And knowing, getting everybody to know that you exist, I mean, that for you guys, that means a lot of participation in developer communities, right? Yep. Sponsoring, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and was that, I mean, was that you and your co-founder in the early days? Did you then explicitly hire developer advocates or do you expect engineers across the board to participate? Uh, yeah. Like so, what way have you structured? Like, is is developer relations now formal for you guys, or what way is it structured? Yeah. So, I think a lot of Century's growth early days is like we were just members of the community. So, like, I, I was at Python conferences all the time. I was speaking at Python conferences all the time. Not necessarily about Century. So, it was like again, it was not forced. It was just generating like goodwill because I was just I was in the community adding value, right? And we tried to keep that true in other communities. I think we tried to, we tried to build this in a way that all this works. So it's like low price point, it's very low friction to set it up. Um, the product is super, super compelling, like what it can do kind of, it's like a light bulb goes on. And so through all that, all it took often was just getting in front of developers. And so, for example, when we entered the PHP community, we're just like, okay, we got to be at the, like this conference, this is the place to be. It's like the Laravel conference way back in the day. And it's like, it's a lot of, um, almost like door-to-door sales, you know, like you, you've kind of got to do that to get something off the ground. And I actually tell people this a lot because they seem to think there's magic, you know, but even at our scale, you know, we launch a new product, we still have to like do that hustle. Like we have to be door-to-door like selling that thing or at least like showing it to people, you know? Um, and so we just did that. It was like, it was all engineers early on. Uh, and again, like half of the engineers that we had early on were either going to conferences to sit at booths, you know, to help like yeah. with booth duty or they were out there like speaking or they had some kind of network and pull. And, um, and so that worked for like quite a long period of time. And then I, I'll tell you, like, we never really quite nailed it going into new communities. Um, cause like, I, I remember like 
Rails, we did the same thing. We're like, okay, yeah. we got to be at RailsConf. We're just going to go do this thing. But we weren't really members of the community. And it's quite hard to be a member of the community when there's, you know, hundreds yeah. of these communities. You haven't earned your stripes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it was enough. It was enough that got us in there. Um, usually you'll find some believers um, if you've got something that, like, they value, of course. Um, and we were like, we like to think we make very community conscious decisions. So, like, where these conferences, like, you know, we're, we're trying to, I guess, give to the community in a valuable way. It's not just we're here selling and, and doing a sales pitch, but like, you know, we, we did the PHP conference. We threw a big party for everybody. Um, like we basically co-sponsored the official party. In fact, before that, there was no official party because the official party was our idea. Um, <laughs> and then it became the official party. Yeah. So, so we're like, yeah, let's, let's build these communities and stuff. And we're, we're trying to find more ways to even do that still today. Um, but I think so you just got to be here's there. an interesting question for you. Right. So let's say, I mean, that's like, that was a core strategy and I've seen other people do it and I've done it myself in former companies. Um, would, so if COVID had happened five years earlier, would that have been a huge problem for you guys? It's a good question. By the time COVID, COVID came along, yeah. it sounds like you were, the, the, the flywheel was already going, right? You just yeah. That's much. Well, so what I'll tell you is like the flywheel's been going since we hired anybody. So I don't think COVID, I don't know what, what COVID earlier would have impacted because COVID still hurt us in a lot of ways because COVID forced overnight a change in the way people work. And that change was actually fairly harmful for a sort of um, efficiency of organization, especially with a lot of people. And so I think you could actually get away with it if you had like 10 people, because like the bonds are a little bit better anyways. But like COVID, we grew from, I mean, start of COVID, I'm sure we were already 100 people, you know, end of uh, 2022, we were probably 300 people. Oh, and so we like hired a, a lot. Limit, right? What's that limit? Like, it's like 150. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's like, and so culture was a challenge. Yeah. Um, just sort of accountability was a challenge. All those things that happen when you're just like forced to work from home overnight. And then you also have hired a lot of people at once. All of those things were just like such a pain. Um, and we worked through them and stuff. But I think, I don't know if it had any... You know, I, I don't know that anything's really changed the trajectory of, of Century, if that makes sense. Um, it's always grown fairly well on its own, and we have not yet hit like a second home run. Like we're constantly like iterating on product, changing the product, and like trying to find product market fit for basically everything else we launch. Um, do but you guys have a, yeah. do you guys have a Heroku problem? So you know the way Heroku took off, right? Um, but then they have this issue where as soon as you start scaling, your MVP scaled. Their pricing structure meant that it was it, the unit economics didn't work anymore. It became really, really expensive. So it justified moving to your own systems, right? Moving to Amazon or whatever. Uh, do you guys have a similar problem, or have you thought about that in your pricing? Yeah, not really. Um, errors, it's it's really like you get a lot of value. Like errors are a little bit complicated, also because they're volatile. Yeah. So the biggest challenge Century has from a pricing mechanics and a packaging construct is. If you have more errors, it doesn't necessarily mean you're making more money. Usually it's in fact the opposite. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you have more errors, you don't really like that the bill's gone up because you're not making more money. Whereas if you have more traffic mm. and the bill went up, you're probably making more money or something. So it makes sense, right? And so that's always been a challenge for us, to be fair. But the error business does extremely well these days. Um, we consider it very mature. It frankly just literally grows on its own. Um 
And it, it drives like the majority of our revenue, which is a significant amount these days. We've not, and so I, I don't think the problem exists there. It does get expensive at scale, mind you. Um, but it's really hard to even hit like a seven figure bill on Century just for error monitoring. Like very, very hard, in fact. Um, and so I think it's okay there. I think broader APM, so like tracing, performance monitoring stuff, that's where this is much more of a tricky challenge. Like, like the famous thing in the industry is like Datadog, like everybody hates their Datadog bill. It's a pretty good product, like their core product. But the price is just like ludicrous once it once it sort of like creeps up on you. Um, like they they ten x our bill on us last year. I think maybe we negotiated a little bit down, but but that that when you're like what the hell, and you're yeah. and especially something like like Datadog, it's like okay, I've got a bunch of charts with numbers on them. I must be able to do this cheaper somewhere else, right? And so we're very conscious of that because we want to use that against you know big vendors as well. Um, and you don't want people they, thinking yeah. that, right? You don't want people. Yeah, exactly. Stuff, we don't right? want people doing that to I us. I can do this myself. Yeah. I can write this. Exactly. <laughs> to be what, fair, what, some people do, but what's um, that? What was that thing back in the day? MRTG. Do you remember? Do you remember MRTG? Uh, it was, it was like a little. So. It was like a little uh, Linux utility that would generate. Oh, charts yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, network traffic and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There were a bunch of those tools back in the day. I always wondered what happened to those, but yeah, it costs about two weeks of developer time to set them up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so c- compared to what you cost, uh, I, yeah. So I think one of the interesting things is everything's much more complicated these days. And so, like, well, I mean, so essentially, you can self-host for free. Like, like our license allows you to like non-commercially host the same code that we deploy in production. So you can do that if you want. It's still it's painful. It's complicated. There's definitely no price to value math that makes sense to do that. Um, but I think it's like, well, it's just logs. I'm just going to write some errors to a database. You can kind of get away with it. The data collection is hard. The ingestion is hard. It's especially hard when, when you have like an outage situation. Um, and I think people will often ignore that. Like we don't have a lot of this problem, but we do have a lot of competitors to be fair. And they don't really compete. Um, the, I think the common phrase people use for it is ankle biters. Um, yeah. But like we have a lot of really small niche players in the space that still exist. And it's 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 kind of like noise is how I think about it. It's like a little bit of a distraction because it's like it's fine that they exist. They're probably never going to grow, but you can't ignore them either because you need to be aware of what the competitive space looks like at all times, right? And so we are very conscious of that. But yeah, it's like you have to avoid the problem where somebody can sort of undercut you because you've lost sight, you know? You've like grown so big, you let it get to your head or something. Um, and so we're very conscious of that. And, and we have to remind ourselves all the time, you know, it's like, you know, we can't just make this naive decision because this is why like a small competitor will come in and be able to do something here, you know, something like that. So how do you listen to developers who are using your site? Like, because that's, that's how you avoid that, right? You... Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you just got to be out there. I, I don't find it particularly difficult. I actually really love Twitter for some of this yeah. community interaction stuff. Um, I'll be sad if Twitter actually does one day go belly up because there's nothing like it. Um, I think conferences can be good, but conferences are tricky. Like, yeah. honestly, like the best conferences are like three to 500 people in size. Um, they're a little bit smaller, but not so small, but they're, they're small enough that you actually meet people. And like, you know, everybody's just, it's a hum, human beings. Yeah, the, the whole like, track is actually a track, right? Exactly, yeah. And so I think that's really, really important. And we're still bullish on that. Um, like we are at, I don't know, way too many conferences. Um, most of them are not that important or valuable, but then there are ones that are just like 10 X more valuable, 
you know, and it's just like reminding folks, like we have to like focus on these like community events and things like that. And, and, you know, always, always be listening, send developers instead of salespeople, if you can, you know, things like that. It's just like, it just keeps you clued in, you know? And, and we also, one thing we're big on is operating like somewhat in the public because the idea is, um, if it's very easy for people to talk to you and to engage with you, this is why I think people like discord, they will. Right. Like people want to give feedback. They want to, especially want to complain, which is really key. Like you got to listen to the complaints. Very valuable. And so, right? Go. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so we're trying to build up discord a little bit more now because it's a good alternative potentially. Like we have a lot of stuff on GitHub where like various communities are active. Our, our challenge, frankly, is fragmentation. We don't have a centric community. We have like the JavaScript SDK community and the PHP SDK community and yeah. stuff. And they're more around yeah. contributions. I mean, you that's know? a structural challenge for you guys, right? Because yeah. I guess I mean, there must be open standards that you guys kind of adhere to around tracing, but kind it's not of the yeah. same as it's not the same as the Node community, which has like specific people or specific conferences. Um, yeah, but I mean, you have done. I mean, it, just in terms of developer vibe, you guys have done pretty well, right? Because if you if you ask like who you know who's who's the developer friendly tracing company, it's I can tell you all the un- developer unfriendly ones <laughs> for sure. Uh, you can tell I've had some bad experiences, uh, but okay. So, I, the the question is, how do you grow it? Then, is, do you double down on the number of developer advocates that you have? Do you use do you, is do you use that as your long term marketing strategy? Uh, yeah, I mean, have you had think... these discussions internally? I, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to kind of. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you know. What works I think um, from the Devrel point of view, it's it's a little tricky and it's interesting. So we we didn't really have Devrel at Century. Yeah. Like we always had somebody, but not always. But like probably for the last five years, we've always had somebody in a role that's basically called Devrel. But it was it wasn't very obvious what they were doing, and I think a lot of the investments didn't turn into anything. And even today, we're still we're still young in that regard. But I think people get too wrapped up in. Well, one Devrel is like this weird loaded thing, but I think people get too wrapped up in, in things like that. Whereas like what we're seeing these days is like, there's a lot more of like sort of the creator community that's impactful, right? Um, you can also look at like mainstream and, and what do they do and how does that apply to tech? So a really good example is I'm a big believer in brand marketing. Um, and so my favorite analogy of this is liquid death, which I don't know if you're familiar, but it's, it's literally just still water, flat water in a can. That has cool art on it. And <laughs> and you might be like, what's the big deal? And I'll tell you, they're like, they're crushing numbers. And what they're selling is not water. And this is always how I've explained brand marketing to people. They're selling, in their case, they're selling like a beer alternative. It like looks really cool and edgy. You could drink it and it looks like you're having a beer, but you're drinking water. And I'm like, I, I was at this concert in Vegas and all they sold was liquid debt. That was the only water that existed. And and again, I'm like, you're buying the brand, you're not buying water. And, and so... As an example, that's one strategy you can take to marketing. So ignore Debrel, ignore anything to marketing in a developer tool. It's like you can do yeah. brand marketing the same way you can do it for a can of water, you know? And so we do some things like that. Like we did like a billboard campaign that we've applied in a bunch of places. It's just the idea was like show something preposterous and Sentry can't fix this. Not only it might not even be broken, <laughs> but like what what is Sentry? Sentry doesn't fix anything. It's just like a monitoring tool, you know? And, yeah. and the idea was just like to get kind of attention, you know, eyeballs. And then the assumption is if you get the right eyeballs and they're aware of your product, when they have a need for it, they will buy it. And so far that assumption works, um, has worked out for us. But it's one of those things I think that frustrates people because 
You can't really track it. It's hard to manipulate. It's like it's hard to manufacture burn. that growth. It's a yeah. slow burn because you get inside a junior developer's head. Well, he or she doesn't buy or cause a buying decision mm -hmm. to happen until like three years later when they're a team lead, right? Yep. Um, but if you didn't make the investment three years ago, yeah. I mean, that, that it is a classic uh, challenge in developer relations across the board, this traceability, because everybody's got so used to traditional web marketing where you, you have all this stuff that you can track and measure. Yeah. You know, conversions and click-throughs and funnels and all that sort of stuff. Doesn't exist with developers, <laughs> right? Yeah, because yeah. You get inside somebody's head and it, there's no outcome until two years later. Um, and we haven't... In the, in the developer relations community, nobody has figured this out because we don't know how to we don't know how to justify our own existence because we can't prove anything. Yeah. But when you have leadership support like Sentry has, yeah, then 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 it's magical, right? Then it really works. Um, I think you've got it, and you've got to have a you've got to have conviction around a set of beliefs. And so uh, there was um I was I had a meeting one time with one of the um the CVPs at Microsoft, which is like a mini CEO. If you're not familiar with their org structure. And this person was running um, basically the Visual Studio and .NET divisions, arguably the only divisions in the IT side of Microsoft that don't funnel money to Azure directly. And I knew within Microsoft, basically all investments had to somehow help monetize Azure. Like that was their, their thing. And so when this org didn't, and this org was really successful, I was asking them, I'm like, how does this work? And they're like, well, you know, a long time ago or whatever, we we ran a bunch of analysis and we showed that if we get more developers using our products, that translates to revenue or correlates well enough to revenue. And so we just don't care beyond that. We know that if we invest in this, this will succeed as well. And I'm like, good enough for you. It's good enough for me. You know, like it doesn't have to be an accurate science. And so, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Like an another good example of that in Century, you're talking about the junior developer. Um Uber was a big user of Sentry, but they never used their cloud services. And we refused to sell like um, uh, anything that's not cloud services, right? And so everybody was always frustrated by this, especially salespeople. They're like, why can't we sell like on-premises or something? I'm like, well, we're not going to do that. And, and you can't really convince people. But what I can tell you is so many people, if you say had interviewed them, that bought Sentry a few years later, or if you looked at their resumes, most importantly, worked at Uber. They used Sentry at Uber. And then when they went to a new company, they're like, oh, hey, we use this thing at Uber. There's just a cloud offering. We can set it up. And we had so many of those anecdotes. I'm like, there's your proof. Like, you don't need more. And so I think you've just got to be willing to not be cookie cutter. And so, and I, I know it, that's a big struggle because like, you know, the, the whole industry is built in a way that you can train sets of skills and then apply those skills and it runs a machine, you know, but sometimes machines can't or yeah, they're not going to run is, the same way, you know. That is a really important insight because what what actually happened there in that Uber example, uh, part of it was those developers had invested mental headspace in learning how to work Sentry. So if I already know how Sentry, I'm not going to invest another month learning something else. Yeah, I know it and it works, and I know the API. Right, this is what I want to use, and I'm going to come up with the all sorts of irrational, crazy arguments. But really, it's yeah. it's economics because I know the API, right? Um, but like you said, you've got to get there first, and you won't see that until six months or twelve months. Yep. Um, of course, Microsoft have a 
Nailed. Um, but they always did. Like, yeah. Bammer and his developers, developers, developers said he was right. He was right. Yes, he was. He was. Yeah. Right. I, I, it's interesting because like we're we're very bullish on that. Like we we acquired Syntax the podcast, right? And like the whole thesis was the same as everything else. Brand awareness and marketing. And like like we don't even advertise on it. They actually they have a century, like they shill it at the beginning of every episode. They chose to do that. We said you don't have to do anything now. Kill all ads, just make great shows, great content. We know we'll get the goodwill of people through it. We know somehow, some way that will turn into cash flow for us. Um, and like, again, you got to be a believer and you, it has to be top down in an organization. It's really hard otherwise, um, because you it just need to, that, that buy-in. Uh, well, my faith in Century is greater than ever. <laughs> this little chat. Thank you so much, David. Really interesting chat. Um, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Thank you so much. Yeah, Take care. absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on the podcast section of our website, voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe to the VoxGeek Developer Relations Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any podcasting platform. We publish each Tuesday and Thursday. You can also access the archive of our meetup talks on the VoxGeek YouTube channel or the VoxGeek website. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.